Welcome to Voices of Santa Clara. Having a good idea doesn't get you done. And if we'd hit those, there would have been an explosion. We would have died, obviously. Scholarship should cultivate the virtues. Worry more about, am I searching for what I should be doing next in the world? Hey everybody, welcome to Voices of Santa Clara. I'm your host, Gavin Cosgrave. I'm a sophomore at Santa Clara University, and it is my job on this podcast to interview professors, students, and staff from Santa Clara to hear some of their stories and provide some fascinating conversations. I thank you for listening to the previous episodes. The Father Ang episode got a very positive review. Uh, The Santa Clara Alumni Association posted it on their Facebook page, and it was sent out in a newsletter to alumni as well, so I'm super excited about that and thankful for the press coverage. You can check that episode out. It's been a couple weeks. The past two weeks have been absolutely crazy, but I'm excited to publish this interview today. Today's guest is Dr. Brett Solomon. She is a child studies professor and director of Santa Clara's Future Teachers Project. Her personal mission is to educate, guide, mentor, and support the next generation of fire starters, and we get into what that means. She writes about the preschool to prison pipeline, as well as social justice and cultural competence. Um, She recently started a blog titled Solomon Chronicles, Reflections of an African-American Mom, Wife, Child Advocate, and Professor Who's Trying to Stay Sane During Insane Times. And you can check out the link to that blog in the show notes or by visiting VoicesOfSantaClara.com where, fun fact, you can see all the transcripts for episodes. They're just shortened transcripts, some of the highlights and you can listen to the show there too or share it with your friends. In today's conversation, we cover the topic of her new blog, how to make a difference in systemic issues like mass incarceration or racial injustice, her advice for teaching as well as parenting and what she's learned from having kids, and how she seeks to support and mentor her students to become the next generation of fire starters. That's all I got. Let's roll the tape and listen to the interview. Please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Brett Solomon. All right. I'm excited to be here with Dr. Brett Solomon on the Voices of Santa Clara podcast. Excited to join you today, Gavin. Um, So you recently started a blog called Solomon Chronicles, and the subheading is Reflections of an African-American Mom, Wife, Child Advocate, and Professor Who's Trying to Stay Sane During Insane Times. So what plans do you have for the blog, and why did you start it? So... Yes, I did just start a blog, and the main purpose of the blog is for me to share my voice like unapologetically. As an academic, we're trained to write academically, and anything that we put out is edited and is based on and reflected, uh, reflective of our research. And I just felt as an individual who's working with students who are going out into the world, working with children and families in varying contexts, as well as personally as a mom of two kids growing up, coming up that I, you know, I want them to, to live in a sound 
world where they feel safe and accepted. The blog is a reflection of my thoughts um, and my experiences and little antidotes um, to put out into the world and to share with colleagues and moms, dads, Mm -hmm. um, other individuals who might be interested in um, what I have to say and kind of the, the, the blending together of um, cultural competence, which I think is very important, social justice, um, and the future for our kids, because it's really about the world that we're leaving for our children. Mm-hmm. What are your goals for the blog? To reach as wide an audience as possible. I, I want to be able to provide others with the opportunity to hear my voice, and I would love for people to respond. I'd love to hear what people have to say, because it's not just about hey, this is what I'm saying, and I want everybody to hear it, but I really want to hear from people who some of these topics might resonate with. Um, I've gotten comments or feedback individually from people who've emailed who've emailed me, and people who I know, and they're like, oh, yeah, this was my experience too, or this is what I witnessed. Um, but I'm really interested in hearing from individuals from across the country, like, mm-hmm. what does this mean to you, or how might this... Um, you know, how might this have shaped a certain experience for you? So I'm at the point in my career where I'm really interested in not just communicating with others about these issues of social justice and cultural competence as it relates to children, but I'm I'm wanting to gather stories from other individuals and and see where that leads me. Mm One of the blog posts that you wrote was called Raising Unapologetically American Children. So yes. what, is it, what does it mean to be unapologetically American? Yeah, so that basically stemmed out of um, a lot of the hatred and divisiveness that's just happening in our world today. And we as adults talk about these issues all the time. And we're, you know, it's kind of, um, you know, hovering in our daily vernacular, but How does it impact our children? How are our kids impacted by um, the possibility of knowing that a member of their family might be deported? Or how are our kids impacted by the fact that um, somebody might judge them based off of their race or their gender or their orientation? And so I think it's so important for us to celebrate our children and their differences through us celebrating our own. And so that means being unapologetic. Don't apologize for where you came from. Don't apologize for the educational levels of your parents. Don't apologize for um, the fact that your hair might look different. Don't apologize for the fact that you might not learn as fast as another person or you might speak another language. These are the things that our children um, experience on a daily basis and they often want to be like somebody else. But like I told both of my kids, I read in both of their classes um, through Project Cornerstone, it's called Asset Building Champions. So it's Mm -hmm. ABC reading. And this is Black History Month. And so Mm -hmm. we read about Ruby Bridges and we talked about differences. And I started off my conversations with both of these classes of second and fifth graders by saying, every single one of us in this room is different. So when we single out somebody because they're different, you're no different from them. Like we're 
we're all different individuals. There's no other person on this universe who's just like you. And mm -hmm. so they were like, oh, yeah, that's true. So, you know, we are all here to celebrate each other and learn from each other and grow together, not to single folks out. Mm -hmm. So that's what I mean when mm -hmm. I say you've got to be unapologetic. Own who you are and celebrate it mm -hmm. and don't apologize because you're. this is who you are and you're here for a purpose. Mm -hmm. How has having children affected your teaching or your work it's been it's interesting because i it's it's affected my work tremendously mm -hmm. um and retrospectively before i had kids i was um you know very academic and by the book and i would actually work with parents about on parenting and strategies and whatnot and i would always feel completely insecure about being called out like well, how do you know this? And you Are you a parent yourself? And I was never called out. And I always was just very transparent and said, you know, this is, you know, what's considered to be best practices or these are some strategies that we can work towards um, with, you know, giving your child choices and trying to accomplish a goal. Mm -hmm. um, now that I have children and living in the region, the, the region, this area of, the Bay Area, where there is not a lot of African Americans, I think we're 3% in Santa Clara County. My filter has now been, how do I provide my children with the um, less stressful and racially challenging environment? Um, they're, you know, the only child, they're the only African American kids in their, um, in their classes. And I, I Actually, my, there's a, another child in my son's class who is African, um, but, you know, they're always the only one. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm very hypersensitive to making sure that they, um, you know, if their hair is different one day, like, you know, making sure that they know that, you know, nobody's supposed to touch their hair, even though, like, their hair is different. Um, so I've been, I've, I've had to arm them a lot more with our culture and our history and why things are important and why it's not okay to say certain things or why it's mm -hmm. not okay to act a certain way. Mm -hmm. um, and I think some of the um, the first posts that I put in my blog about um, cultural competence um, kind of touches on that with the situation with my daughter in camp mm -hmm. and them being called the goofy gorillas and her knowing mm -hmm. like we can't we can't call ourselves that because that's not appropriate for mm -hmm. African-Americans. So it has um, certainly impacted my strategies with just raising them, but it has also shifted um, my focus and my research mm -hmm. here at the university. Mm -hmm. One statistic that I heard you mention was that African-American students are 3.8 times more likely to be suspended than mm -hmm. white students. So. Is that because they're they're doing more bad things, or is that all discrimination, or is it a combination? And how does that suspension thing work? I wish that I had like the solid answer for you because mm -hmm. it is kind of a question like why is this the case? Mm -hmm. um, you know, even if we look at um, um, the same types of behaviors that might be seen at a school. Um, that white kids are demonstrating and black kids are demonstrating, the black kids are more likely to be sent out of the classroom and referred for discipline. Mm -hmm. And so um, 
you know, individuals can draw their own conclusions on why that's the case. But, you know, there is something called implicit bias. And so how does implicit bias factor into the way in which individuals engage with each other just on a a daily basis at the grocery store, at the gas station, at um, a shopping mall? And then how does that play out in a classroom context? How do we as teachers um, acknowledge our biases if we know that we have them? and um, try to overcome those mm-hmm. or um, try to build a bridge because it is an epidemic. I mean, when we talk about the school to prison pipeline, mm-hmm. the preschool to prison pipeline, there's an overrepresentation of black and brown children, mm-hmm. an overrepresentation of children with special needs, and that translates into mass incarceration. So kids are getting kicked out of school. <laughs> and they're not feeling accepted in school. And I know if I didn't feel accepted in one place and I kept having to go back to that place and I kept being kicked out of that place, I'd be done with that place. Mm -hmm. And so for many kids, and particularly African-American boys, um, that's the case. Mm -hmm. And so I don't want to quote this statistic because I don't, I I think it's 12%, but there's um, kids who are suspended from school and expelled from school Mm are um, significantly more likely to end up involved in the juvenile justice system Mm -hmm. um, just because you're out of school. And what are you doing with your time Mm -hmm. when you're out of school? And then they age out and they may eventually end up in the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. So um, I think we need to address implicit bias, Mm -hmm. give all individuals, not just teachers, police officers, Um, individuals, I think everybody should have um, some type of cultural competence and implicit bias exposure Mm -hmm. so that we can start to see a decrease in kids who are feeling unwelcome at school, um, unconnected with school, and um, ultimately being kicked out of school. We want to see a decrease in that. Mm -hmm. I feel like mass incarceration and racial disparities are such gigantic issues that sometimes it can be overwhelming some like sometimes when thinking about this type of problem it's it's so overwhelming that we just want to do nothing right it gets too much so you're just yeah so what so what what would you tell a student who is maybe feeling like they didn't really have any power to change any of this right I would say get to know individuals who are impacted by the problem. Mm -hmm. So if we're talking about school to prison pipeline, we're talking about get to know and understand the experiences of the kids who are impacted, the kids who are kicked out of school. What is that about? Um, And oftentimes, you know, we see a behavior in a classroom and it's the behavior that we respond to. So if it's you're tardy or you're, and I'm going to answer your question, mm-hmm. but there's there's a person and an experience behind the behavior. So if we take a step back and look at factors contributing to why are you late or why are you falling asleep in class or why are you disrupted? Why are you disrupting? And you often start to see, oh, this kid is caring for other siblings because a parent is in jail or another parent is on drugs or this kid doesn't have a quiet place to study so they have to go to a certain place at nighttime and travel back and they're tired so it's so getting back to your question it's about understanding 
factors that contribute to um, the overall problem. If it's about, you know, DACA, which is a big issue right now, and, and um, immigration, you know, get to know the experiences. And so once you can understand and empathize, you can't pretend that you don't know. So Maya Angelou has a quote that says, when you know better, you do better. And you can't pretend that you don't know it now that you know it. So what are you going to do? And I always pose that to my students. I'm like, now you know this. Like, mm-hmm. it's out there. What are you going to do? Mm-hmm. What what change are you going to affect? Um, and so it might just be, um, you know, you know, baby steps. I have a student who was really impacted by the experiences that kids were having in foster care. Mm-hmm. Um and she decided to be a court-appointed special advocate for foster kids as an undergrad. She's a senior right now. Mm-hmm. She started this in her senior, in her sophomore year, mm-hmm. and um, that was what she was doing. That was the one thing that she decided she was going to do to try to help or have an impact on kids who are in the foster care system. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think it's educating yourself and then figuring out now that you know what you know what are you going to do with it Mm -hmm. and i think collectively we can make change Mm -hmm. on a similar on a related note you've used the phrase fire starters to Mm -hmm. describe how how you want your students to be so what, what does that mean and how do you how do you accomplish that when you're teaching yeah so i mean it it ties in nicely to what i was just saying about um you know, now that you know, now that you know what you know, what are you going to do with it? It's like, I feel as if my role as a professor here is to spark interest. So like, Mm -hmm. if I'm the spark, like just a little spark, um, I want my students to be the fire that literally take an issue, a topic, a challenge and tackle it from all angles. And so, um, that's and that goes in line with Saint Ignatius. Saint Ignatius said, "Go forth and set the world on fire." So there's a um, a real solid social justice theme behind. You're going to be fire starters. Um, it also is connected to Dr. Cornell West, who wrote a book, Black Prophetic Fire. I think I have it back here somewhere. Oh yeah. Black Prophetic Fire, where he talked about six um, historical African-American figures that he considered fire starters. Like, mm-hmm. they're the ones that are getting the movements going. They're the mm-hmm. ones that are making and affecting change. The students at, um, let me get the name, Marjorie Douglas Stoneman, the school that was just impacted by the mass shooting, those kids are fire starters. Mm-hmm. They are starting a movement. They are trying to affect change for gun control so that schools don't see this type of of mass shooting again in our country. So, you know, whether it's an unfortunate situation that sparks a fire, um, we in in my classes are talking about children Mm -hmm. and we're talking about issues of social justice and equity. And Mm -hmm. so we provide our students with the knowledge base and some experience to mm-hmm. see for themselves. But with that, we expect them, like St. Ignatius said, to mm-hmm. go forth and set the world on fire. Hmm. That's why you're here at Santa Clara University. Hmm. That's what makes us different. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd, 
I'd love to know a little bit more about some of your some of the other things you researched. Mm-hmm. Um, so one is in in 2014 you wrote a paper called "What Can Cafeteria Seating Patterns Tell Us About Intergroup Relations in Middle School?" Um, so I'm wondering what what can the seating patterns tell us about um, middle school relationships? Yeah, I mean, and middle school is such a such a transitional time mm-hmm. for kids, right? And it's so. And even the term itself, middle, I think it shouldn't be called middle school because it's giving a impression that you're not anywhere. Mm-hmm. You're not here or you're not you're not there. You're in the middle. So just, you know, that's a whole other conversation. Um, but it is a time of great transition, social transition, physical transition, um, I was going to say economic, um, academic transition. And so... At that time, kids start to shift away from their family being the focus of their um, their socialization and, and referring to family as their baseline for how they should go about solving problems and doing things. And the shift changes to peers in middle school or during the middle school time frame. So that's when we start to see students sitting with students who are similar and familiar to them that could be similar and familiar based off of oh we were at we went to the same elementary school so in sixth grade you might see students kind of lumping with each other based off of what they're comfortable with because we came from the same middle school excuse me same elementary school but um you know seating patterns and who kids choose to spend their time with do tell a story about, um, you know, who they are and things that are important Mm -hmm. to them. So Mm -hmm. that was um, a really interesting project that I worked on with Dr. Sandra Graham at UCLA. Mm -hmm. Um, And it really is a window into um, how we can understand and support students who um, also might feel disconnected from certain groups. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also who are the kids who aren't sitting with a specific group and who are the kids who are floaters? What does it tell us about who those children mm-hmm. are? So I think mm-hmm. there's a lot to be learned from looking at who's sitting with who at lunch. Granted, not a lot of kids are in a quote-unquote cafeteria mm-hmm. Um in general, so it's kind of like where are they kind of hanging out mm-hmm. at lunch would be, you know, another way to go about looking at kind of like socialization patterns and how those might impact or influence other um, behaviors and preferences. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kind of thinking about, as we were talking about before, the idea of fire starters. I guess at mm-hmm. Santa Clara, everyone's choosing to be here to some extent, right. but in uh, maybe junior high or high school, mm-hmm. that's not necessarily the case. Mm-hmm. I guess, how do, how should teachers think about getting students to care about school? Because it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's difficult. I feel like it's difficult to, um, to create fire starters, mm-hmm. uh, in quotes, if, if, if a student is kind of apathetic about right. their school or they don't want to be there. So how do you think about that? Right. So, like it's something that we say in all of our child studies classes and it's it's something that seems so simple but the mark is often missed and it really boils down to relationships it boils down to the teacher 
knowing and genuine, genuinely caring for each and every one of their students, independent of their context. Mm-hmm. And so if a child feels welcomed and cared for and valued and respected mm-hmm. by a teacher, they're going to want to and be motivated to learn and to succeed. If small successes are celebrated by a teacher, then that student is going to be further encouraged to want to succeed. So it's not like, oh, let me come up with a real creative and snazzy class project that these kids are gonna love because it involves you know, A, B, and C factors. It really starts, it really boils down to, how does that teacher make me feel about myself? Mm-hmm. How welcome do I feel in this classroom? Do I feel safe in this classroom? Do I feel safe at school? So it's really about establishing a climate in the classroom um, so that the student wants to be there. And if the student wants to be there, it doesn't matter. Um, I shouldn't say it doesn't matter, but the, the actual learning is less important than Ha- then whether or not the student feels comfortable and safe and wanting to be there because the teacher values them. The learning will come. Mm-hmm. The learning will come. And that's without question. So that's what teachers can do is just you know be genuine and caring with their students and the learning will come. Mm-hmm. In Silicon Valley, I feel like the cool job to have is kind of in technology, right? Mm-hmm. So why should... Maybe a Santa Clara student um, become a teacher. I guess what's the what's the value? Of that? Well, nobody would be where they are yeah. in Silicon Valley or you know anywhere without teachers, mm-hmm. right? So we need teachers and we need good teachers. Um, you know, people say, "Oh, if I, if this doesn't work out for me, I'm going to teach." No, we don't want you to teach if Plan A doesn't work. If your Plan A doesn't work, then you figure out your Plan B. But that doesn't mean like you know, you're, um, you know, downgrading yourself to teacher status. I mean, we, none of us would be where we are without teachers. And some of us had great teachers. Some of us had not so great teachers. Some of us had probably a combination of both. But, you know, just like people, children grow up and say, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a lawyer. I want to be an astronaut. There are kids who grow up and say, I want to be a teacher. It's often because they're encouraged and influenced by a teacher that they have. So um, students find us. They come to Santa Clara with a goal and a purpose. Sometimes that goal and their purpose is their parents' goal and purpose for them. And so oftentimes we have defectors from like um, combined sciences or business um, who say, you know, this is what I'm really interested in. I was a camp counselor in high school. And I loved it. And um, this is what I want to do. And I've got to, you know, work it out with my family in another context. So I say, yes, Silicon Valley, we, we are Silicon Valley. We are, we are technology based. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that that is mutually exclusive. You still, there still needs to be teachers. There needs to be teachers in Silicon Valley. Um, And, you know, I think that there's room for for everyone, mm-hmm. and students need to follow their passion. If you follow your passion, and if you 
are in a position professionally where you can say to yourself honestly that I can do this whether I get paid or not, then you know you've chosen the right profession. If you're just going to work to work and you're making money and you're doing it because you're making money to survive, which a lot of people are doing, then you haven't found where you're supposed to be. People who are teaching have found this is where I'm supposed to be. People who, are, who intentionally go into teaching know that that's where they're supposed to be. And so it's a great feeling to know, like, this is what I'm doing and this is what I love. Mm-hmm. And then my last bigger question is, mm-hmm. what up to this point in your career are you most proud of? In my career, in my career, that's a great question. Um, I'm most proud of my mentoring of students. I am most proud of the Future Teachers Project. Um, this is my 14th. I'm looking at this picture because mm-hmm. it's these are this is a combination of students from our first graduating class in 2002 to um, I guess this these students just graduated about three years ago. Um, but I'm most proud of the program in that these are students who come from um, urban and underserved schools and communities who want to return to their school home schools and communities to be teachers and um, to date we got over a hundred students who've come through the program where we just celebrated 20 years of existence mm-hmm. um, used to be EFTP for Eastside Future Teachers Project and we've since expanded beyond but you know I don't take credit for FTP the program um, has wonderful students that we're able to financially support through um, through SCU and through their credential program and they they're the fire like they're the ones who are going out into the communities and um, working with the kids and um, it's been fantastic so um, professionally FTP and the students and teachers who have come through FTP mm-hmm. have been phenomenal and it's been an absolute pleasure to direct the program and engage with and mentor and support all of these wonderful students. Yeah, awesome. Well, I'd love to wrap up with a couple of shorter questions. Sure. So what's, uh, first of all, what is your favorite place that you've traveled? The favorite place that I've traveled, um, my grandmother used to live in Madrid, Spain, and we used to visit her over the summer many mm-hmm. time with our parents, my sister and I. But one summer, she just sent for me and my sister. And my sister and I literally flew from L.A., changed planes in New York, and w- and went to Madrid. And I think I was like 11, and my sister was 13. And that was like the coolest experience ever for the summer. And just being in Europe and learning the culture and driving through the countryside and going to the castles and whatnot, mm-hmm. that was pretty cool stuff for a kid who didn't really, really recognize the value of her experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, if, if you could send a message to every person in the United States, what would you want to say? Be nice and be kind because we are more alike than we are different. Mm-hmm. Do you have any book recommendations of books that you think every college student should read at Santa Clara? 
Well, a book that I just recently um, finished was a book by Tanashi Coates, and it's called Between the World and Me. And it's a book that he wrote to his 16-year-old son about being growing up as an African-American boy or young man in today's world and, and the dreams and hopes that um, he has for his son. So I love that book. That I, I would recommend that. Mm-hmm. And then finally, what does your ideal Saturday look like? My ideal Saturday looks like not leaving the house. Literally, I run around all week with my kids Mm -hmm. to various activities and and tutoring and whatnot. So literally just staying at home in my pajamas and just kind of hanging out, Mm -hmm. maybe doing some yard work or or cleaning, um, working out on my spin bike. That's that's perfect. And having dinner brought in, Mm -hmm. that's an ideal Saturday. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for doing this interview. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the show today. You can subscribe to Voices of Santa Clara on the iTunes podcast app. You can visit VoicesOfSantaClara.com for interview transcripts, and you can like the Facebook page. Special thanks to Miles Elliott for the music. Thank you for listening, and have a nice day.